travel back in time to the 80s, reliving the music. Everybody have fun tonight. Everybody Wang Chung tonight. The movies. Yes! 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 Oh! 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 I'll have what she's having. And the parties. No one in my family ever drinks. That's great. You probably never run out of ice your whole life. Because just like you, we're stuck in the 80s. Sure, it's not 1985 right now, but who knows what tomorrow will bring. Hey, Brad, look. The light's blinking on the stuck in the 80s answer machine. That's weird. We never get any calls. I didn't even know we had an answering machine. Can you still get one of those? Look here, I'll just click the little button and we'll see what's what. Um, yeah. Is this stuck in the 80s? You guys suck! Well, that's par for the course. What's the next message? This message is for Spearsy and Brad. Your podcast about the origin 80s music was so not cool. You left out a ton of cool bands, like, um, well, tons of them. I'm not going to name names. That's your job. But you could do better, dudes. Harsh, but fair. You know, that voice sounds a little familiar. It's, it's a little like Drew, if you ask me. Hit the next one. Um, yeah, this is Lou. Uh, yeah, Lou, yeah. Not Drew, who, by the way, is doing a hell of a job. You guys better redo that music that started the 80s podcast, or I'll... I'll just keep leaving lame messages. Yeah, I thought that was Drew. Hang on a second. Hello, this is Lou. I, I mean, Drew. Oh, damn it. Mm-hmm. Just as we suspected. Pathetic. Guys, I'm sorry. I just I wanted to do another podcast. I have so much more to say. And the fans, the fans have more to say. We need to do another Origin of the 80s show. Why didn't you just say so? Cue the music and let's end this pathetic charade. Hey, hey, welcome to Stuck in the 80s. It's your host, Steve Spears. And if today's topic sounds a little familiar, it is because we're doing now our tribute to the fans' picks for songs that started the 80s. With me today, my two pals from L.A., it's Brad and Drew. Hey, Steve. Hey, Steve. Yeah, apparently we didn't do a good enough job, so the fans wrote in a bunch of their own suggestions. Well, you know, you can only cover so much ground in, what, an That's hour true. and four minutes. Yeah. <laughs> but didn't you kind of expect and want that? I mean, you, I wanted the feedback. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's yeah. The, you, you put that out there and you make a statement. I mean, it's kind of funny. This is like what I do at work as a consultant. You can't just go into a room with people and say, what do you want to do? You have to come in with some idea so they can say, uh-huh. I hate that. But let me tell yeah. you what I do like. Boy, that's true. That's nice. Let me hit the rewind button and explain the idea of the show. About a month ago, we got an email from Alex Stix Cardoso Solis from Tijuana, Mexico, and he had a great question for PPTMN. Please, please tell me now. And rather than just make it a portion of a show, we turned it into an entire show. And basically what he wanted to know was, 
what songs did we consider to be the um, beginning of the 80s sound and what songs did we consider to be the end of the 80s sound? And we decided to break it into two shows and just do the, the, the songs that started the 80s as one podcast, and then later on we'd come back and do a show on the songs that end the 80s. But uh, in the meantime, after the show came online and, and it got phenomenal downloads, it's probably our most popular show of the of this year. Downloads are off the charts. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was a it was a great show. It just flowed. But um, as soon as it was over, people were like, "Great show!" But I'm surprised you didn't mention. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. so we we gathered six or seven of um, your suggestions today, and so we're going to honor your suggestions. We'll talk about the songs that you think we missed out on. Uh, for uh, origin of the 80s or the sound of the 80s. And remember, the idea here is these are songs probably from the mid to late 70s that first gave us an idea of what the 80s were going to sound like. So uh, these are not going to be 1980s songs, obviously. Yeah, this is a great, great suggestion. It's It really does make you look further than just the decade of the 80s. It, you get to extend yeah. it a little bit. And I, I love this suggestion. Yeah, anything that doesn't make us have to do another podcast on Back to the Future is fine by me. <laughs> hey, I've seen this one. I've seen this one. This is a classic. The um, But some of the bands we talked about on the last podcast were The Cars, uh, Roxy Music. Uh, what were some of the other ones? Blondie. Yeah. Um, I did some uh, – oh, my God. I can't remember what songs I did. Didn't you pick an Anne Murray song? I think I did. Some Air Supply. I know Air Supply is always one of my favorites. You you have been all out of love for some time. <laughs> they really were the masters of electronica. Oh, Gary Newman. That was one of the ones yeah, I Gary, That was Gary Newman. So, so here are our, our six for this episode. Let's get it started with this little gem we've all not forgotten. We were at a party. Rock Lobster, anybody from the B-52s? Love it. Yeah, how can you not like this song? I can't believe we missed it. I mean, I think when we were thinking about bands, I know we mentioned the idea. Someone said B-52s, and then we never came back to it. Yeah, I mean, it was it was one of those kind of on the radar, and I decided that the things I picked, I, I, you know, we talked about this last time. I was picking stuff that charted a little higher, but this is a great example. Uh, Rock Lobster, written by Fred Schneider and Ricky Wilson, the B-52s. There are two versions of it out there. There's one that was released in 1978 and a longer version. I think it's about seven minutes long. Yeah, that's, that's the album out. version. that you. Yeah, that's on the uh, 1979 self-titled uh, debut on my B-52s. I don't think I've ever heard the single mix. I think I've only ever heard the album version. The um, it, Here's my theory about this song, Impossible to Dance to at Our Age. <laughs> at our and maybe too hard to dance to when we were in our teens i'm not sure i know that you would break a sweat yeah. that's for sure oh yeah you break a lot of things <laughs> you can't move it's 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 just a like it's like um it's like prince uh um what was the song for the uh dry you know oh. uh purple it's first rain. Song purple rain purple rain no. or uh, hang on i'm gonna, I'm gonna come back cry? let's go crazy no, no. It's like Prince's Let's Go Crazy. It's just a half a beat too fast for me to dance to. 
And, and it has um, that long introspective speech at the beginning, so you have some time to catch your breath <laughs> yeah. and position yourself on the dance floor. Exactly. Jesus. Uh, this was actually the first uh, single from the B-52s to appear on the Hot 100 by Billboard. It only reached number 56. Well, it, there was a lot of a lot of uh, Stevie Wonder songs The that kids year. just weren't ready for this yet. Exactly. I guess you guys aren't ready for that yet. Yeah, I'm sure that. The... Um, in Canada, got it right though. In Canada, it was number one hit. That's that's and wild. That is wild. We don't get to talk about Canada enough, but uh, kudos to the Canucks for figuring that one out. The uh, Rolling Stone magazine obviously named it uh, one of their 500 greatest songs of all time. It ranked at number 147. Nice. I heard a quick story that uh, Ricky Wilson called his his sister, who was also in the band, and just said, "I have just written the stupidest guitar <laughs> lick in rock and history." And that was the the famous down down and it just it just repeats the whole song yeah over yeah. and over yeah and over. yeah yeah um I've heard this story and um I think I've confirmed it enough places where I feel comfortable repeating it but John Lennon was said to have heard this song back in seventy nine and said it sounds just like Yoko Ono's music <laughs> yeah. so it's time for me to get out and start making music again. And um, and so and that led to the album Double Fantasy. And uh, Yoko Ono has uh, – I think she was interviewed by songfacts.com back uh, maybe this year and said the same thing. Yeah, John heard this album, said it reminded him of my music and just decided he'd taken enough of a break and wanted to get back out and make new music again. Yeah, I heard um, it was the scream at the end. Exactly, that's what I heard. I mean, that, that's what Yoko said. It was that scream that John realized. God, this sounds just like. Wow, Yoko. I could do that. The, I, uh, you know, back back in the eighties, I'm, I'm sure I told this story once upon a time. We used to do uh, lip sync competitions at our high school. Did you guys? You guys didn't have that, did you? No, sir. We had one. We had one. Uh, yeah, like karaoke lip sync thing competition at our school. Huh. It was huge wow. in uh, Tampa Bay, and um, they would set up the stage in the auditorium like a concert stage. You'd have you'd have fog machines, you'd have professional lighting, you had everything. There was a drum set, you had all the instruments. All you had to do is get up there and like with your little five friends and do whatever band you wanted to do. And uh, we won. Um, let's see, one year we did Blues Brothers, me and my friends. And then the second year we did Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Relax, and we won. And one of the <laughs> one of the perks to winning was then you went on tour. To all the other <laughs> You did. You went on tour to all the other high schools. So when they had their lip sync competition, you'd be like, um, you were the act that played while the judges were making up their decision uh, on who won. Oh my like god. Like the showcase. So you would go and we did like we went to a middle school and did our, our, our stuff. We went to another, a couple other high schools and did it. And one of the high schools we went to was Pinellas Park High School, uh, which is in the middle of uh, Pinellas County, Tampa Bay. And so we're sitting there waiting to go on, and these just ridiculously dressed nerds walk out in front of us and did uh, Rock Lobster by the B-52s. And it blew us away. They had um, – they were so good. They had all these little crazy props. They used all this uh, paint that you know, glow in the dark paint and and neon paint. So as the as the show lights went on and off, different Whoa. figures started to appear on stage and stuff like that. It was like watching America's Got Talent, basically. Wow. 
and uh, they got booed off the stage. Really? Pinellas Park. Pinellas Park is a tough place to play. When they got booed off the stage, and I'm thinking Frankie goes to Hollywood, has to follow the B-52s, and they booed them off the stage. Now you know how Human League felt at the uh, (laughs) ball a couple years ago. Yeah. (laughs) That's the other thing we have in common. We all saw this song performed live in Hollywood. What was it? Has it been three years now? Yeah. Three years, yeah. And that was actually a dream of mine to see this song. I mean, there's there's certain songs as you're growing up and you think, oh, I'd really like to see this song played live. I always wanted to see Elton John do Rocket Man live, and I did get to see that. But honestly, the B-52s doing Rock Lobster, that was one of my I, I really want to see this live kind of moments. And I got to see it, and that was really cool. There's probably been a couple times in Stuck in East history where I said, I've kind of heard enough of the B-52s. I've, I've heard enough of their music. I don't want to think about them anymore. I, I don't really want to do a show about them. And then when I saw that concert in L.A., I, I just they blew me away. That was one of the best live performances yeah, I've yeah. seen. They are in so good live. Thirty years, They're so good live. And and I I feel the same way, Steve. It's just like oh yeah, B fifty twos. You know, I never need to hear Love Shack ever, ever. <laughs> but when they play it live, I'm up there jumping around, dancing, singing, trying to take crappy videos with my cell phone. You know. It's uh, they're just they're amazing live. If if eighties nation, you get the chance to go and see them, and you pass it up, you stink. If you do get a chance to see them, don't sit next to Brad though, because he's up there jumping, jumping around, around dancing, dancing, taking. Pictures. You don't want to be seen near that. Yeah, it's yeah. not pretty. <laughs> it's not pretty. So who's next? We had another suggestion from a reader that was money. That's what I want. The old cover from the Barrett Strong Motown hit, and this one was covered by the Flying Lizards. Really, a guy named David Cunningham. Your love gives me such a thrill But your love won't pay my bills I want money So this song was recorded in 1979, or released in 1979, I should say. And they recorded it in Cunningham's living room. And it was kind of funny because they loved the song, but Cunningham was kind of a pop satirist. And so he wasn't really trying to do anything great with the song. He was actually kind of making fun of pop music. And they recorded it in his living room. They had a piano in there that was taking up. They only had one mic. So they took and threw stuff on the piano strings to dampen the sound, like telephone books, stuff like that. And uh, they recorded this song in one day, and it ended up going to number 50 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. That's crazy. Oh I had no idea this song was released that early. I just kind of had this pegged in my mind as kind of a mid-'80s song. I, I think like everybody else, I heard this song for the first time um, in the Wedding Singer soundtrack. No, I mean, it got, pl- again, to not to rub it in, but it did get airtime on K-Rock in the mid-'80s, yeah. and I just assumed <sighs> that's where it, where it came from. You know, that was a mid-'80s track. Guys in your K rock. I know, I know. We like to rub I'm it in. Flashing around. I know. Uh, I, I don't <laughs> think I ever my heard mustache in... as we talk. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe it was on MTV, but I, I remember. And to me, still, I, I credit uh, Wedding Singer and with starting the whole '80s Renaissance, the whole nine yards. But uh, it's definitely. Um, I, I would have almost called it a uh, not a gimmicky song, but. Uh, yeah, oh, I think of, it's very gimmicky. Kind of novelty-ish. Novelty, yeah. A little yeah. novelty-ish, yeah. Yeah, definitely. But for some reason, it just works. And some of the theories are it's because it still has basically the hook, the great hook from the 60s song. But it, it as deconstructed as it was, it still worked. And like I said, it got to number 50. So, which is, I think, a little high for a song like that. The lyric but, is just so deliciously deadpan. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, which is, again, something we talked about with Gary Newman, how it was just, a, you know, and I, I use your word a lot these days, it's so detached. It just, yeah. It's like, I want money. You know, I, sometimes I, I almost think I like the music of 1979 better than, I, I, in 1979, some amazing stuff came out. And really kind of showed us a glimpse of what was going to happen, but it didn't really happen for another three or four years. Yeah, right? didn't really catch catch everyone's attention for a little bit. But my God, you just talk about you know lightning in a bottle, nineteen seventy nine, just amazing yeah. stuff. Well, I think it's part of the cycles of music where the stuff that's been around it's been around for three or four years now, and it's starting to really play its course. You know, it's kind of reached a point where everybody's a little bit oversaturated with it. You start getting a lot of the boy bands. And then uh, someone new comes out with something different, and that leads to a different revolution. I think that's what was going on in 79. So speaking of revolutions, um, we'll go to my first choice here. Uh, I'm going to hit you guys with one that I actually suggested as one of my alternates in the last show. Someone else also got on board with uh, I Can't Get No Satisfaction by Devo. I actually made the mistake of using this one time as a uh, name that 80s tune. Oh. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Clip, and people jumped on me like, that's not from the 80s. Well, you know, cowboy up. So uh, <laughs> on October 14th, 1978, Devo was a musical guest on Saturday Night Live. They were one week. That was the second show of that season, and they were uh, – they followed the Rolling Stones as musical guests. The Rolling Stones were the musical guests on the season premiere that year. And they played their cover of Satisfaction uh, from their debut album, uh, Are We Not Men, We Are Devo, which was released in 1978. So I thought that's, I don't know, that's a little, that's a little gutsy. Uh, yeah, it's a little ballsy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's kind of, you know, a little, a little bit of an in-your-face. And, you know, there have been times I know that um, they've asked Mick Jagger what he thinks of it, and he's pretty sarcastic about it. It's like, oh, you know, I prefer their version to our own kind of stuff. But... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so this is again. This is off the seventy-eight, their seventy-eight studio debut or their major label debut, I guess you'd call it, with Warner Brothers. Um, so that was produced, kind of famously produced by Brian Eno, and you know a lot is made of that. But the reality is, that Brian Eno and Devo did not get along at all. Like they, he really wanted to add a lot more kind of production to it, and they really wanted to like, no, we recorded the demo like this. This is how we want to do it, and so there, there's a lot of friction between them. Uh, but the thing I found out just today, I didn't realize this, is that Devo didn't have a record deal when they recorded this album. So Brian Eno basically fronted all of the costs to produce this album. He paid for the, them to fly over to Germany to do the recordings. He paid for all the studio con time, you know, all that stuff up front. You weren't sure what you paid for. I, I want to know who's going to pay for this. And did he make his money back? I'm assuming. Oh, I would think have. he did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting. You don't really. I mean, you don't really hear a lot about Brian Eno and Devo after this. Like they kind of seem to have gone their separate ways. What I'm surprised about is hearing that Eno was part of this. How much you could do two or three podcasts just on bands that Eno helped. Yeah. I mean, I'm amazed. I didn't realize he was. He had his hand in so many different groups yeah i mean not only was he doing so, a lot of production but he was doing a lot of his own stuff too like, yeah yeah we could do like an eight-part retrospective on brian eno yeah. and just scratch the surface is he the great white buffalo now of stuck in the 80s interview uh lore oh my gosh that would be amazing 
I I'd be out, I'd be out of my water. Uh, yeah, I would have to do. <laughs> we'd have to schedule that for six months out so I could get ready. Oh, jeez. Yeah, that's how. Well, that's how. I mean, I remember one time I had an interview, not not set up, but I mean, I got approval to do an interview with Devo, and uh, and I. I didn't end up not doing it because I'm just like, geez, what, what do I, what do I have to say? I remember you were asking me what I, what you should ask them. I know. I, I was asking everybody because I'm like, I don't know. It's just, you know, just one of those things. I'm like, nah, just, this is not going to go well. Ask them if they yeah. remember signing that poster for me when they did an in-store <laughs> in <Jeez>. Westwood. <laughs> yeah. In support of the Total Devo release. Just, I still have that poster. Here's another song that was suggested by the readers as one of the songs that we missed in our uh, Origin of the 80s podcast. This is Train in Vain by The Clash. Okay, guys, uh, pop quiz, true or false? This song is a hidden track on their album London Calling. That's true. It's true. I knew it's, that one. It's it's sort of true. It's not listed. It's not listed, but it's it was not intentionally not listed. It was a song that was recorded literally at the last minute. Um, the sleeve for London Calling had already been produced, so or at least production had begun. So most editions of uh, London Calling do not show the song. A few do. Okay. So your question really wasn't so you're true or false. It's it true was, and yeah. false? Yes. So it was a trick question. So, wow. so I'm the asshole. So it's our own little Kobayashi Maru. <laughs> it's a little Kobayashi Maru for you. Man. Just Steve trying to be superior again. Yeah, like, uh, you guys well, I, do I, anything I, about music. <laughs> no, that's clearly. <laughs> well, that's – I mean, I, for years I had believed – that it was it was like the hidden track, but it was not intentionally done that way. It was just a production snafu. So it's so intentions are what count now. Yes, I didn't intend to kill him, officer. Oh, off you go. Attention is everything. So I don't uh, think it was a production snafu. What I had seen was that it was it was supposed to be a giveaway. That the track alone was going to be a giveaway in a magazine. It and was. Then they decided not to. Okay, so okay. But but then at the last minute they decided it, it wasn't going to work for that, so they decided to put it on the album instead. Okay. But it was it was never really meant to be a hidden track. I, I, for the for that matter, I can't imagine the Clash getting involved in like let's put a hidden track on an album. You know, it, it just, does seem a little strange. It's, it seems a little Pet Shop Boys to me. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm really glad somebody suggested a Clash song because I felt like we had kind of missed a bet there on that one. Yeah. Um, Again, Rolling Stone lists this as one of the 500 greatest songs of all time. It was sadly uh, ranked number 298. Um, in the U.S., a lot of times the song's title is expanded to Train in Vain and then in parentheses, Stand By Me, because you don't hear the words Train in Vain in the song. Now, I also saw something that said that this was the first top 40 hit for The Clash in the U.S., yeah, I believe it was. And, yep. you know, I mean, London Calling is an amazing album. And if you really want to – I don't even think this song – this song doesn't really, to me, even sound like it belongs on that album. It's definitely a different so sound for them. But yeah. it's one of the reasons I like that song so much. You know, yeah. It's, but it's, it's very poppy. Yeah. And the rest of the album is not. But that's okay. I mean, you know, we all have to, you know, feed our families. I, I, was, <laughs> I, was, looking around, I was looking around for the meaning of the song. Or our, or our heroin habit. Yeah. 
I just, what, what are you, are you doing in Valencia? Jeez. I'm talking God. about the clash, not us. Oh, okay. You see, it was impo- we do math Your intention was not clear. Your intention was not clear. Hey, hey, listen, guys. Look, I don't want to mess with no reefer addicts, okay? So, train in vain, supposedly, is... Um, there's a couple of different theories as to what train in vain means. Uh, Mick Jones, who wrote most of the songs, said uh, that, that the song has a train rhythm and a feeling of being lost, and so that's where the song title comes from. Uh, Joe Strummer has said in multiple interviews that um, it has more to do with uh, uh, Mick Jones, who used to take the train ride uh, across the country to see his girlfriend all the time, um, and that those visits would often end with him not going for not accomplishing what he went out there to get. Hence, train in vain. We had another great suggestion from our listener, and this one was the Talking Heads Psycho Killer. The funny thing for me about this song, I actually considered it for our original podcast on the origins of the 80s, but I felt like, although this is a really unique song, it wasn't so much to me about what songs were going to sound like in the 80s, but more like what the talking heads were going to sound like in the 80s. The talking heads to me were always so unique and different in everything they did Yeah, that, again... yeah, and you know, I, I've established that I like the weird stuff of the 80s, but even then... Fact. <laughs> even then, it still is really... It's the talking heads in the 80s yeah. that it sounds like to me. Yeah. So it kind of is a standalone. They're unique enough that yeah, that's kind of how why I left it off. But Yeah. I know when I, our first go-round, one of my kind of shortlisted candidates was uh, Life During Wartime, which is off of uh, Fear of Music. Fear of Music was produced by anyone? Brian Eno. Brian Eno. Brian Eno because he has a shot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jeez. You know, what's the, fu- the funny thing about Talking Heads and uh, Psycho Killer to me is that when I think of this song, I think of the version that appears in the concert movie Stop Making Sense. Mm-hmm. And Which is the I, first song, I believe, right? It is the first song. And I just watched that again like two weeks ago. And just it's still as amazing today as it was back then. But I remember I'd heard that version a million times over before I finally heard the original 1977 version. And I'm amazed at how different they are. I'm really more familiar with the, with the album version. Yeah, me too. I just, um, the, the, uh, the, the movie, you know, the documentary thing, it, it just it didn't get me, but I, I, so I'm more familiar with the album version. And this is a great album period. I mean, I, yeah. I remember somebody, Somebody turned me on to this album, and I think it was the late 80s before I heard this for the first time. And uh, we played it from start to finish one night, and um, probably while we were drinking Manhattans or something stupid Ugh. like that. Wait, what? I'm sorry. What's so stupid about a Manhattan? <laughs> oh, no. I, I've, I've had, I had one Manhattan in my entire life, and my grandfather, my grandmother gave it to my grandfather, and then my grandfather said, why don't you try it? You know, I was like, all right. And, 
And I took one sip of it and almost spit it out. Well, and then he was mad at me because I was wasting alcohol. Well, good for him. <laughs> yeah. so, there's, so. nothing wrong, there's nothing wrong with a classic cocktail made with two parts bourbon, one part sweet vermouth, a dash of Angostura bitters, and uh, garnished with a cherry. There's nothing wrong uh, with that. No, uh, maybe not, but it just very, it wasn't for my taste. feels very grandfathery. It's a classic cocktail for a reason. It, it is a classic cocktail for a classic generation, well, which what's my this, grandparents what's, were. What's the other cocktail you make with um it's a sweeter cocktail you make with whiskey. It's um an old fashioned? Maybe with, that's uh, it. with simple sugar. I'm not God. the guy to be answering this one. Yeah. I mean cuz cuz I you are allergic to alcohol. Have we yeah. covered that before yeah. in the show? God. Yeah, whereas I'm a freaking walking drink encyclopedia. <laughs> <laughs> My dad used to drink these crazy oh God, what was it? I mean, maybe it was an I am enjo- I'm enjoying another bloody mary garnished with a uh Green You're onion. garnishing your drinks again. Uh, <laughs> is it an onion? Was once, it a green onion? Once again, I'm not a caveman. We live in a civilized land. We're allowed Jeez. to make, you know, to garnish our drinks. But the only thing that garnishes a drink is my liver. <laughs> That's gross. <laughs> it's falling apart as we speak. Um, anyway, anyway, Brad, I'm sorry. can you to- put your totally- can you put your garnishes? Oh wait, no, I have a I have a real quick thing because of yeah. Tina Weymouth has a. She, I heard a story from her, and this is a long time after the the song had come out, and apparently they were all back together. You know, Weymouth's kind of like not a big fan of David Byrne, and she said <laughs> yeah. apparently he said at one point, like in a later interview, he said, "I really like that I came up with the Keskase after I said Psycho Killer. I just thought that really gave that song a, a really well, unique- say quoi." Yeah, and Weymouth was pissed because she's like, I thought up that line. And she just thought that was typical of, of Byrne just to kind of take credit for everything. So that's my little Weymouth story on that. Nice. So nice. my second pick here uh, is one that was suggested, I think, on the Facebook page. I'm sorry to say that I did not uh, write down the name of the uh, listener that posted this, but it's Hiroshima Mon Amour by Ultravox. Riding into city trains Dressed in European grey Riding out to Echo Beach A million memories in the trees and sands Oh no, how can I ever let them go? Hiroshima, Mon So, I had never heard this song. I saw the suggestion and had to go and check it out. But uh, it's probably important to mention that uh, this was the title is actually a, uh, the title of a film, um, which came out in 1959 before even Steve Spears was born. Uh, it's a French film about a French Japanese couple, and uh, I guess it's very popular with the film nerds because it is so unbelievably hip about its use of flashbacks to create a nonlinear storyline. And Drew, you know all about nonlinear storylines because you're a nonlinear editor. Yeah, but. That doesn't mean that I get to do it. I know, I, mean, I know. Someone else comes along and says, like you said, you have to show them something so that you they, like so they yeah, can go, that sucks. Yeah, they show you, show, yeah, we always said, give them your second favorite idea first. <laughs> yeah, seriously. So anyway, our work angst notwithstanding. Uh, fast forward to 1977 and Ultravox releases the first of two versions of Hiroshima Mon Amour. Uh, the one you just heard is... It's an interesting blend. It's it's got this heavy electronica sound of the '80s. It sounds pretty heavy. Well, it has nothing to do with it. Uh, it's got an early use of a Roland TR-77 drum machine. Uh, but the other thing that really jumped out at me was sax solo. 
And nothing screams <laughs> 80s more to me than a saxophone solo. Especially if it's a really muscular guy, kind of oiled up, no shirt, like I Lost Boys. Believe. You're, you're, you're kind of <laughs> grossing me out right now. I, hey, I'm I just saying. I love that song. Yeah, but I could have done without the visuals. That was a weird. It was a weird visual, but it made for so many great uh, Saturday Night Live skits. Yes, it did. <laughs> yeah. Anybody with a tenor sax is cringing at that. But. Yeah. I have to uh, go with Brad on this. I had never heard this song. And when I started listening to it just for the podcast, I, I loved it. I, I bought it. Yeah, it's a really cool it. song. It's really cool. It's a really good song. But it is, it's that, it does kind of bridge those two things. It's got the sax solo, it's got the drum machine, mm-hmm. a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I mean, I'm um, much more familiar with some of the Ultravox's more mainstream stuff like Dancing with Tears oh, in My yeah. Eyes, which is actually a cover of like a 20s song. Uh, yeah, and Reap the Wild Wind. But uh, yeah, this is, this is great. It's in my library now, like you said. I know that it's been covered a lot. The church um, covered this song, I think, in the late 90s. Brian Ferry um, in the uh, 2002, I believe, had a single called Hiroshima that makes a reference to Hiroshima Monomore. It's it's definitely one of those songs that, um, like the film itself, the hipsters, you know, attach themselves to and really point to. Hey, if you're you know a fan of this sound, you you need to know this song. Well, the hipsters may attach themselves to this song, but. You know what I'd like to attach myself to? The The Seggies. Hey, it's time for Reader Mailbag. And uh, got two letters this week. And we're going to split up the reading duties here. You said duty. Sorry, I had to. (laughs) (laughs) The first letter comes from Chris Salmond. And he says, what? I finally get a song right, taken in. And you don't mention my name? What do I got to do to get some love around here? I'm mad, upset, and confused all at once. But I'm also forever stuck in the 80s. Arrivederci. Chris Salmond, DWS, we get initials on this one. Pastor of Worship and Technology, New Hope Baptist Church in Loveland, Ohio. Pastor of Worship and Technology? (laughs) (laughs) Those things go against each other? I know. I'm intrigued. That's like a title from a Dune novel. I know. (laughs) I, I feel bad because Chris, I think, was the first one who got the name of the 80s tune from the previous show by Mike and Mechanics. Because literally, I think only three or four people got it right, and he was the first time. And I, I wrote back and forth to him. How I missed his name when I was doing the notes is beyond me. Well, uh, yeah. We got, on the garnish. To, we got to talking about <laughs> something else, and I neglected to read the winners. Last week's uh, Name That 80s Tunes winners include Chris in Cincinnati, Bass Note, Kevin Wench, and Marie in Kissimmee. Stuck in the 80s deeply regrets any pain and suffering caused by this admission. So, our second letter is from longtime podcast friend Tor Hansen. Excellent. Haven't heard from Tor in a while. Hi, Steve. Hi, Steve. Yeah, nice. (laughs) Thanks, Tor. Hi, Steve. Great podcast on the sure thing. I do like the movie, though, in terms of entertainment factor. It tips too heavily into schmaltz for me to like it as much as Better Off Dead. Not that I am anesthetized to the high spirits of gooey romance. Can't buy me love gets me every time. It's a good one. No, Speak- it's not. Oh, I love I Can't Buy Me Love. Is it, I don't get gooey. No, don't. It's just no, kind of, it's, it's no, funny. He he is yeah. He's saying he's saying the romance of the movie is gooey. No, oh, never mind. Okay. <clears throat> I like Can't Buy Me Love, the end. <laughs> African Anteater Dance, always funny. <laughs> that is see, always funny. you're laughing. Speaking of 80s comedies, I've been tracking down some of those I didn't get to see in the 80s or just forgot I'd seen. My favorites so far include Vamp, Get Crazy, and my personal pick for repeat viewing, Secret Admirer. 
It may be the best C. Thomas Howell released between 1985 and 1986. <laughs> <laughs> the long-storied career of C. Thomas Howell. Intermittently sloppy and clever, but seldomly dull, it features Kelly Preston at a time when she may well have been the most stunning female on the planet. But what I found most intriguing is how the movie actually captures some of the rending insecurities of being a teenager and puppy love, even in its douchiest characters. <laughs> it never fully works as a film, but I suspect I will be watching it over and over again for its unique melange of the elements that comprise 1980s teen movie storytelling. And yes, C. Thomas Howell does pronounce larynx in the film. I'm not sure I follow, but okay. I'm just reading I'm but a vessel here. Uh, in the interest of making this a reader mailbag, mystery movie moment, name that 80s tune, please, please tell me now, email... Please, please tell me now, are there any sub-successful 80s gems that you guys return to again and again because they just capture something for you? Thanks again to you and Brad. Ah, there we go. Tor. Well, we can't have a PPTMN without the theme music, so here we go. Please, please tell me now. Please, please tell me now. Ah, it's time for PPTMN, and as you already know, Tor Hansen has the question for this week. Um, are there any sub-successful 80s gems, movie-wise, I guess, that you guys return to again and again because they just capture something for you? Oh, was he talking about movies? Uh, yeah, I was thinking music. I was thinking music. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do both. God, okay. yeah. yeah. Let me think about movies for a second. Um, I mean, see, for me, it's kind of tough because I immediately go to like um, Red Dawn, which I know did pretty well. And even got that horrible remake. But if you watch it now, it's really not a good movie. So it's it's it's, well, it's not. It doesn't hold up that well. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'll give you that. You like it because you liked it then. You watch exactly. It, I, it exactly. I cannot separate. I cannot separate my feelings for it then with my feelings for it now. Yes. And and that is the the great paradox of stuck in the eighties. It's that a lot of the things we talk about now, unless you saw them back then. They're just not gonna. They're not gonna do anything for you now. It's like uh, making the grade. That movie never saw it back then. When I saw it again a few years ago, I hated it. I just I don't yeah. get it. So blame it on Andrew Dice Clay. <laughs> um, a movie that I I loved the Summer Lovers <laughs> uh, would be the one for me. Uh, Daryl Hannah. This? Okay. Harry, is it Peter Gallagher? Yeah. Daryl Hannah. And the French ast- ast- uh, actress who's now dead, <laughs> whose name I can't pronounce. Wow. The dead one? Yeah. The dead one. The dead French actress. Um, Catherine it's a move. Now, it's set, I think it was 1982, and it's set in the Greek Isles. Peter Gallagher brings his girlfriend, Daryl Hannah, there to spend the summer. And they end up both falling in love with this French woman who's there. And all sorts of uh, sexual hijinks. Uh, and like, bow wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, you make it sound so easy. But yeah, I remember 1982. So what am I? You know, 14, 15 years old. And this is showing on um, HBO. I mean, that's. Oh, thank yeah. you, God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can see well, why that would be popular. That I mean, for me, funny. the movie Hot Dog was that movie. Oh, yeah. Oh, I love yeah. that. That I was very popular with my friends. <laughs> With your friends, well, yeah. With my yeah. friends and I. Let me finish. <laughs> finish. I'll, I'll get on board with it. I had sunny side up and sunny side <laughs> down and sunny side all around. So I think for me, for movies, it would be stuff like that that was, you know, the kind of, uh, you know, schedule filler stuff that they had on HBO at the time. So Hot Dog the Movie is a great example. 
um, Flash Gordon. Oh, which, yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's not a. Maybe that doesn't. Mm. Maybe that's not sub successful. That's I, my problem. Is it sub successful? You know. Yeah. And uh, Cannonball Run. The original Cannonball <laughs> oh, I Run. Love Cannonball Run. It's so funny. It's just so dumb. You know. And the bloopers at the end. Yeah. These yeah. bleeds. Hard. These rosary bleeds. <laughs> um, as far as music goes, I, anything by the Thompson Twins for me that is um, you don't hear them anymore on the radio. And yeah. for me, when you hear um, "Lay Your Hands on Me" or "King for a Day" or anything like that, to me that brings me back straight to the eighties. Yeah, I think I was probably too dismissive of Thompson Twins when they were actually popular, and now when I hear it, I'm like, this is really good music. Yeah, I was a huge fan of the Thompson Twins, so for me, oddly enough, um, it's Billy Squire, I think, is one. Uh, that, not not his, you know, The Stroke, but that whole album, Don't Say No, It, I think it's a great album, and it just didn't do well, and other than the one song, maybe it had one and a half hits on it. Yeah, but I freaking love that album. Billy Squire was just the bomb. I just, I feel so sad. For, sorry for him. I guess is the word to have his whole career pretty much implode because of one really bad music video. Yeah, it's directed pretty, by Kenny Ortega. Yeah, who did you know High the, School Musical? Yeah, and who pretty much killed Michael Jackson, right? Yeah, twice. <laughs> <laughs> he also so. choreographed uh, Dirty Dancing. Yeah. So speaking of Dirty Dancing, I, there was a thing in the Times this week. There was a a um, obituary for Patrick Swayze's mom. Yeah, she lived out in Simi Valley. Yeah, and there's a there was a picture. I'll see if I can find it online and link to it. But there's a picture of her and Patrick Swayze in her dance studio doing some move. And I I texted you the picture, Steve. I don't know if you saw. Yeah, it. I got it. I it's got a it. Great picture. But suddenly I'm like, oh, that's where Patrick Swayze mer- learned how to move. Oh you know, yeah, his, his mom, mom was like, "You will do it again. Do it studios. again." Yeah, his mom taught dance out here forever. Yeah, I didn't realize that. Yeah. So I wanted my what came to mind when I saw this question again. I thought about music, but I, you know, music is so to me it's so contextual, like time and place. Like music will take you to a certain time and place. And there was a band that my older sister was really into that was a, like a Wichita, Kansas band. So they were touring in Oklahoma. And uh, they had one album that was out. The ba- name of the band is The Clocks. Nobody has heard of this band. The- I think their claim to fame was someone thought their album cover was groovy one. And it's just like kind of normal bar band, straight ahead rock and roll. But I love that album because when I hear it, again, I'm cruising around. I'm, you know, I'm 16 or 17 years old, cruising around this little town I grew up in. And, you know, life is good. I saw a picture on the cover. That's the kind of memories that get tied into music that you listen to a lot when you're younger. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Well, it's definitely a great question. Uh, thanks, Tor. Um, pretty thought-provoking. If you have a PPTMN for us, um, email us at sit80s at gmail.com or steveinthe80s at gmail.com or bradinthe80s at gmail.com. Just remember to put PPTMN in the subject line. We'll be right back after this commercial break. Flunk Valentine's Day. Hey, the basketball was funny. Oh, very funny. And the hamster was cute. Cute. And this year, I'm giving you the FTD Candy Hearts bouquet. Don't kill me, Roger. Beautiful flowers and these red-hot candies. Get your red hots. 
Don't spoil it. Get your red hearts. You're learning. Make up for lost time. Send your Valentine an FTD Candy Hearts bouquet. Please don't let this feeling end. And we're back. You know, I actually was going to write in a letter, and then you guys asked me to be on this podcast, but I was going to write in a letter and tell you guys kind of about one of my road trips a la, you know, the sure thing. You know, one of those like... Yeah, hit us. All right, so I'm in high school. It's my senior year of high school, and it's actually the weekend of my senior prom, and I'm not going. I hadn't... hadn't wanted to go there's no one i was oh poor no i really just wasn't i I, i'm not interested man i don't want to go (laughs) and a buddy of mine who was a few years older um he single tear tracks down Drew's face yeah right he says hey let's go on a road trip let's go visit your sister up in college now my sister went to humboldt state which is about 100 miles south of the oregon border so we're down in los angeles he decides like 11 o'clock at night let's go visit your sister and we'll just spend the weekend up there and i'm like all right so we hop in his mini truck and we start driving. And the original idea was he was going to like drive for a while and I would sleep in the passenger seat. And then when he got tired, he would, we'd switch. But every time I'd start to fall asleep, he'd get bored and lonely. So he'd slam on the brakes and wake me up. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not getting any sleep. And we we're we're just north of San Francisco. It's it's dawn, you know, and I'm just I'm now driving. He's asleep in the passenger seat, and I'm starting to do the you know I'm I'm kind of drifting a little bit. Yeah. yeah. And so I see there's a park up in the next off ramp, and I'm like, all right, I'm just gonna pull over. I could I could just crash on the side of the road, just sleep for like twenty thirty minutes, and I'll be good, and then I'll be able to drive. So I I pull off the off ramp, and there's the curb. There's about ten feet of grass, and then about a six foot brick wall, and then the park. But I can park right there at the curb, and I can just sleep on the grass right next to the road, and it's fine. So I get out of the car, and I lay down on the grass, and I take my sweater, and I put it underneath my head, and I'm sleeping. And I don't know how long I was asleep, but Jeff's waking me up. He's, like, nudging me, and he's like, dude, what are we doing? And I said, I was just so tired I had to sleep. He said, that's fine, but what are we doing in a cemetery? (laughs) (laughs) And I look, I stand up, and I look over the wall. Sure enough, I had not even noticed one of the headstones in the park. You know, and I'm just like, I don't know, it's quiet. I don't know. It's not a park. (laughs) Yeah. So we get back in the car. We end up, we we cannonball it all the way up. And and it's like, for those on the East Coast who don't really understand, California is a really long state. And it's about a 15-hour drive from Los Angeles up to Humboldt State and Arcata. And we get up there and we're having a good time. And here's here's kind of the, the, the connection to sure thing. I, my sister was on the crew team. She was the coxswain for the rowing team and for both the men and the women's team. And she says, Hey, they're having a party tonight. Let's go to the party. So we go there and there's all these, uh, you know, rowers and everything, including the, the women's heavyweight team yeah, and your head off. And when I'm sure they would have ripped your head off. Oh yeah. Well, this one comes up to me and she says, hi, I'm the woman of your dreams. 
And it scared me so bad. I was so into because I'm I'm like 17, right? And I'm just like, hi, um, um I don't think so. I gotta go. <laughs> and I turned around and I, and I booked it. And just like Gibby and sure thing, my weekend ended with no no sex going on, and I, I went home safely intact. I guess is a good way of putting it. <laughs> your your honor remained Something with you. Intact. Yeah. So yeah. I've I've always kind of felt like this little. I, I, I've had that moment that Gibby had, you know, traveling cross country and it seemed like, co- like cross country, you know, going 15 hours, but it was a great trip and it was really a lot of fun. And, and I missed all the drama, you know, and of course I come back from, from that weekend and everybody else is, Oh, so-and-so broke up and these two people hooked up. And I just was like, Oh, I had a nice road trip. So that was, that's my sure. That thing. is a, that's a better story than any prom story would have ever been. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. But I have to ask you though. I mean, I mean, have you ever regretted like hightailing it, turning around from the, the woman of your dreams? No, because she, she, <laughs> she again, she was on the heavyweight team, and it's not that I have anything against athletic women. I've always I've always liked athletic builds and everything, but she was a bit too built, I guess, as a polite way of putting it. So no, I've never really regretted it. Okay, well, that's a, that's the important thing. I guess so. Yeah. Um, as we mentioned earlier. Um, the, the original question from from Alex was he wanted to know songs that started the 80s and songs that ended the 80s in our minds. Um, and so I guess it, it makes sense now to to ask you, um, the people who listen to the show, send us in your suggestions for what songs you think ended, the, the last songs of the 80s. The yeah, last so songs we can that ignore them. Sounded. We can ignore them and then we can make our own picks and then we can use you to squeeze a fourth yeah. show out of a single question. Yeah. Yes. Because we need show ideas badly, but but give us give us your picks for yeah, songs. Yeah, do. Um, you know, it might be something like it, it could be a a song that's like this is the last time I remember hearing the '80s sound, or uh, or it could or it could be this is a song that almost started to kick off the new sound of the '80s type of thing. Um, I mean, I've been kind of racking my brain trying to think of it because for the most part, I had turned my brain off come 1987 because I just couldn't deal with the music anymore. So it's it's going to be hard for me to research this particular one. So any suggestions you have, I'll take them. Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about, you know, more like themes, like the sax solo thing. I think, you know, <laughs> find me the last top 40 hit that actually had a sax solo. Uh, you know, that start, kind of stuff. We'll start combing the uh, Hall of Notes and Quarter Flash. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> wow. I think Quarter Flash okay. was gone by. Uh, yeah, I was going to say. 84. God, I loved them, though. You know, I hope we get a chance before Stuck in Ease, uh Finally, in someday to do our epic two-parter on Quarter Flash. <laughs> you know the addresses by now. It's sit80s at gmail.com, Steve in the 80s, Brad in the 80s at gmail.com. Uh, Drew, yes, thanks sir. for uh, thanks for leaving all the messages on the answering machine. <laughs> um, well, you know, I get lonely. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm, glad you, I'm glad we came back, the three of us. I think we recaptured the magic from two shows ago. This is a fun topic. I could talk about it forever. Yeah. yeah. And Brad, as, as, as always. You know, you know what I say, Steve? 80s Nation, keep garnishing. (laughs) I'm going to go garnish something right now. In the meantime, myself, Drew, Brad, and uh, all the talking heads, we remain here hopelessly stuck in the 80s. Stuck in the 80s is a Class of 85 production. Please listen responsibly. 